We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Lamentations chapter 1. And if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we began uh, studying this interesting Old Testament book last Sunday, and I just did an overview of the entire book, and so now I want to dive into chapter 1 this morning, and because I don't have a note sheet for you where you can see the title and an outline, I just thought I would let you know that the title that I chose for this message and this particular chapter is Processing Sin's Painful Price. So if you're a note taker, you might want to write that down, Processing Sin's Painful Price. And just glancing at the headlines from this past week, we've all been reminded that we are living in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world that's filled with all sorts of pain and misery and heartache. Six people, three children, three adults were shot to death at a Christian school in Nashville. At least 25 people were killed and dozens hospitalized after violent tornadoes ripped through the south and and Midwest, leaving a path of destruction uh, in its wake. Nine soldiers were killed when two Blackhawk helicopters collided in Kentucky. And of course, sadly, the dominant news story, Donald Trump was indicted for allegedly making hush money payments to a porn star, which whether you uh, are in support of it or not in support of it, it simply uh, has once again ramped up the civil war that is brewing in our country, and to see the lack of unity and the conflict and the discord. Uh, and that's not even to mention the, the, the murders and the stabbings and the thefts in Houston alone, right, that we are so used to hearing on the nightly news. Even here in our church this past week, we, we are grieving the death of one of our senior saints. Uh, two young people mercifully Uh, survived a horrific car crash that could have been fatal. Marriages are struggling because of the consequences of sin. Families are are grieving the sinful choices of other family members. Uh, Physical ailments have debilitated folks and even landed some of them in the hospital. It's never a good week when, when I'm able to visit multiple people at the same time in the same hospital. Kind of multitasking, right? I got to go to this floor and then I got to go to this floor and this wing and this unit, right? I mean, that's not a good week, right? Um, but that's what I had the privilege of doing yesterday as I, and, and, and as I walked through uh, the hallways of the hospitals and passed by the rooms of, of people um, moaning and groaning in pain. It was, a, it was a stark reminder to me of the brokenness of our world due to sin. And we're just all sufferers uh, in this world. And uh, part of that time was with my wife. And I just, as we were walking through the hallways, I, I just said, I hate hospitals. Uh, it's like the last place I want to be. Uh, I would think you would agree, right? None of us want to be in a hospital, right? Especially if we're actually in a room, checked in in a room, right? Um, because it just represents uh, we're not in good shape, right? We're, we're not well. Something's wrong, desperately wrong. And, uh, and so I think survey says the last two uh, places you want to be in, in, in life would be uh, hospitals and funerals, right? But uh, guess what? 
There's a lot to learn from both of those places, aren't there? And as I mentioned last week, we all experience the effects of, of sin in, in three specific ways. There, there's the general effects of living on a sin-cursed planet. For example, when a tornado rips through your neighborhood and tears apart everybody's homes, um, uh, we we're also experience the, the indirect effects of other people's sin. For example, when a, a drunk driver kills one of your loved ones. Uh, and we also experience the, the direct effects of our own sin. Perhaps an example would be our gluttony destroys our health. Well, regardless of whether they're general, indirect, or direct, every one of us has had to learn to live with sorrow, suffering, and tears as a result of sin's curse. The question is, how do we keep from losing hope? Or worse, how do we keep from losing our faith in God while living amid the heartache of sin? What can we do? Where, where can we go when we feel like we're drowning in the grief and shame of sin's consequences? How, how can we find mercy in the midst of our misery? Well, the answer to those questions is what the Bible calls lament. Lament. And, and there's an entire book in the Bible dedicated to this subject, and it's called Lamentations. And unfortunately, Lamentations is one of the most neglected books in the Bible, and so few Christians are really familiar with it. Walt Kaiser, uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers, said this in his little commentary on Lamentations called Grief and Pain in the Plan of God. That's, uh, that title's worth the price of the book itself, Right? Uh, this is what he said, quote, no book of the Bible is more of an orphan book than Lamentations. Rarely, if ever, have interpreters chose to use this book for a Bible study, an expository series of messages, or as a Bible conference textual exposition. Our generation's neglect of this volume has meant that our pastoral work, our caring ministry for believers, and our own ability to find direction in the midst of calamity, pain, and suffering have been seriously truncated and rendered partially or totally ineffective. And so because preachers tend to avoid this sad, strange little book, many believers lack a biblical theology of suffering and so we're unequipped to cope with the suffering that will inevitably become in all of our lives. We lack what Kyle mentioned this morning in our prayer time. He, he called it a sufferology or sufferingology, right? We, we need to have a theology of suffering. And so I, I don't want that to be true of any of us. And, and so I want to be, to be able to say to you uh, what Paul said to the elders in the church in Ephesus, when he said in Acts 20, verse 26, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, Lamentations is in the Bible for a reason. And it's there to teach us how to weep and how to mourn over the sad, painful consequences of sin. I heard someone say, this week that we watch the news to know how to lament, right? Every, every night you watch the news and, and it just, it's, a, it's cause for lament. 
because it's a reminder that we're, on a, we're in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. Well, Jeremiah wrote these five songs under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to comfort the people of Judah who had survived the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem and to help them cope with the pain and the misery that they were experiencing as exiles in Babylon as a result of their sinful rebellion against God. And even though this may seem like an obscure book to us, I think you might find this interesting, it continues to play a significant role in the lives of Jewish people. Lamentations is read every year in Jewish synagogues on the anniversary of the first destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, 586 BC, and again by the Romans in AD 70. I mentioned last week that it happened in the province of God on the same exact calendar day. Think I was making a point? I think so. Um, Orthodox Jews, as you know, assemble every Friday afternoon at what is known as the Wailing Wall uh, in the old city of Jerusalem to bewail the, the, the downfall of the holy city, and they kiss the stone wall, and they water it with their tears, and they recite from their well-worn Hebrew Bibles and prayer books the lamentations of Jeremiah along with the lament psalms. I think it's also interesting that even in, among Christian denominations uh, around the world, readings and chantings and choral settings of lamentations are regularly used. For example, in the Church of England, readings from Lamentations are used at the morning and evening prayers during the Holy Week leading up to Good Friday. So the Church of England is using the Book of Lamentations this week. Uh, The Coptic Orthodox Church in Egypt and the Middle East uh, chant Lamentations on the 12th hour of Good Friday uh, to commemorate the burial of Jesus. And so for those of you that think this is a terrible timing, right, to be looking at lamentations on Palm Sunday, right, where where there was a it was a celebration of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, right? The Messiah, Hosanna. And you tell us to turn to Lamentations chapter one? Seriously, Pastor? What's your problem? Well, if you remember in Luke chapter 19. It says that while the crowds were cheering Jesus on as he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, it said that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. So, in light of that, this is a perfect Palm Sunday message. And the point is simply this, that we need to learn how to lament like Jeremiah and like Jesus. And I said this last week, that lament is the language of exiles and aliens on our often grief-stricken and pain-filled pilgrimage in this fallen world on our way home to heaven. And so we need to learn to lament. But a lot of us as Christians don't know what it means to lament. We're, We're not only unfamiliar with lament, we're uncomfortable with lament, And that's the conclusion of Mark Rogop, who was a pastor in Indiana, who recently wrote an award-winning book uh, entitled Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. And I had come across this book a few years back, and I noticed that 
Uh, it had a section on Lamentations, so I got it thinking that I might use it if I ever teach Lamentations, and sure enough, here we are, and I open it up, and boy, this is an excellent resource. In fact, it's so good uh, that we had, uh, I think, 20 copies purchased for uh, the Resource Center because I think it'll serve as a great supplement to our study over the next uh, month or so. And I would highly recommend that you all go get a copy of this, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. Um, This book was the result of the author's own personal struggle to cope with the grief and the pain of his wife delivering a stillborn daughter. And in his quest just to navigate his emotions through such a heartbreaking, heartbreaking experience, he began studying the, the biblical genre of lament, which he admits was not familiar territory to him. But he found it to be a gift that God has provided us to bring our sorrow to him, to wrestle with him, and to process our grief and our pain, and to tap into the rich reservoir of grace and mercy that God offers us in the deepest, darkest moments of our lives. He had a great line. He said, lament is the way we tunnel our way to hope. Isn't that good? Lament is the way we tunnel our way to hope. He also said this, lament is the prayer language that stakes its claim on the promises of God in the pains of life. That's good stuff right there. Lament is the prayer language that stakes its claim on the promises of God in the pains of life. It vocalizes the pain of the moment while believing that help is on the way. And that help obviously comes from God primarily by sending his son Jesus to endure the miseries of sin through his death on the cross so we could experience the mercies of God. And so... Rogop encourages us to learn from lament and writes that when we look at the world through tear-filled eyes, we're able to see things that those who are dry-eyed cannot see. He admitted that he had read the Psalms of Lament and Lamentations many times before, but when he read them again with tears in his own eyes, dealing with the loss of a, a daughter, uh, he saw things that he had never seen before. And he said it was powerful, it was beautiful. And he said this, quote, while there are other places in the Bible where lament appears, particularly the Psalms, the book of Lamentations is the most intense and comprehensive minor key song in the scriptures. It is a book of shock and awe. You familiar with that expression? Shock and awe? It's kind of what we're known for as a country, right? When we want to go make a statement somewhere around the world, we just come in with shock and awe and let them know we're here and there's no use fighting back, okay? Because we will dominate. That's just the shock and awe mindset. And so here in in the first chapter of Lamentations, Jeremiah gave a shocking description of the terrible devastation of Jerusalem caused by the Babylonian invasion. And this faithful prophet had warned the nation of Judah over and over again for 40 years to repent of their sinful ways or they would suffer the consequences. 
and yet they failed to listen to Jeremiah, and so God kept his promise to discipline them by sending the Babylonians to conquer them and take them into exile for 70 years. Turn over to 2 Chronicles really quick, because I want you to see the historical setting of Lamentations. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse 11. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 11. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Zedekiah was one of the sons of Josiah, who was the last righteous king, godly king of Judah. His sons were wicked, and it goes on to say that in verse 12. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God. That's never good, right? When you rebel against the, uh, you're the puppet king for this uh, other world ruler. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people and there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasury of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all of its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had Escape from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons and to the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. That is the historical setting of Lamentations. And so Jeremiah penned this collection of five funeral dirges, as we called them last week, as he sat mourning the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of the people of Judah uh, by the Babylonians. And so here in the, in the first poem, Jeremiah lamented over the horrible price that sin exacted from the people of Judah. And so he presented Jerusalem's tragic state really from two perspectives here. Uh, first of all, he gives an outsider's view, someone from the outside looking in. And you see in verses 1 through 11, uh, he speaks in the third person, so it's more him describing uh, Jerusalem. But then uh, in verses 12 through uh, 22, it's more of an insider's look. And it's really, it changes to the first person, so it's really Jerusalem's perspective of itself. And so let's look at these two sections this morning, and we're going to use an outline simply like this. We're calling, we're going to call it the plight of the city verses 1 through 11, and then the plea of the city, verses 12 through 22. If you want a simpler outline, you could just simply say verses 1 through 11 is misery, and verses 12 through 22 is mercy. In other words, there's a plea for mercy uh, in that 
second half. So let's look first of all at the plight of the city. Let's look at the misery here that, that Jeremiah described. Verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. So Jeremiah began here by describing the cataclysmic changes in Jerusalem as a result of the Babylonian invasion. And, And he likens the holy city to a woman, in fact, a widow. And notice the three ways the city has changed. There was a a population change. Uh, This once bustling city teeming with people had become a deserted ghost town. Uh, Their economic standing changed. They're likened again to a bereaved widow who was, uh, you know, uh, as well as I do in the Old Testament, uh, widows were depicted, right, in a state of hopeless despair. Widows, orphans, uh, aliens, uh, they couldn't protect themselves, they were destitute, they were defenseless. And then thirdly, their social status changed. They were once the queen of the world, and now they're a slave. And the city that used to rule all the other nations was now forced to serve the nation of Babylon, so they, it, it, she lost all her authority, all of her influence. And then look at verse 2. She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her. Among all her lovers, all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So Jeremiah described her response to the the desolation and the devastation. And she spent many a, a sleepless night sobbing uncontrollably and bitterly lamenting her sad situation and tears were constantly running down her face, longing for someone to comfort her, but there was no one around to comfort her. Her lovers and her, her friends were the allied nations that she depended on to protect her from her enemies and the, the, the city had failed to trust God for protection and chosen said to trust in these foreign alliances along with their false gods. And, and, and it's as if Israel had married Jehovah at Mount Sinai. They had made a covenant with him and God considered her actions the equivalent of adultery, that they had been unfaithful to that marriage vow. And now they were reaping the consequences because when they needed comfort, those lovers, those nations were nowhere to be found. They ignored her. They even laughed at her. And that little line there, she has none to comfort her, that is like the, 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 the clanging gong throughout this first chapter. Um, verse 9 says the same thing. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She did not consider her future, therefore she has fallen astonishing. She has no comforter. Verse 16, um, for these things I weep, my eyes run down with water because far from me is a comforter. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, there is no one to comfort her. Verse 21, they have heard that I groan, there is no one to comfort me. So she was forsaken by her by her idols and betrayed by her allies, she found herself all alone, destitute and defenseless. Someone said it this way, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. James said that, right? James 4.4. 4. And in the end, the world will be an unfaithful lover who betrays us. Our idols will fail to satisfy and will ultimately forsake us. 
Sobering truth. Look at verse three and four. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are afflicted and she herself is bitter. So all the people of Judah had gone into captivity because of their sins and there was no pilgrims coming to worship in Jerusalem. There was nothing to celebrate. There was no place to celebrate. So the priests had nothing to do and the young ladies had no one to marry. He mentions Zion here in verse four, also in verse six, also in verse 17. This originally referred to the hill in Jerusalem on which the city of David was built. Then later when the temple was constructed on Mount Moriah, Next to that, and the ark was transferred from the city of David to the temple. It was called Mount Zion. So this term eventually uh, applied to the entire city of Jerusalem, which included the city of David, the temple mount, the western hill. Um, So this is, we're talking about the city of Jerusalem, Zion here. Look at verses five through nine. Her adversaries have become her masters, her enemies prosper for the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary all her majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion her princes have become like deer they have found no pasture and they have fled without strength before the pursuer in the days of her affliction and homelessness Jerusalem remembers all her precious things they were from the days of old when her people fell when her people fell into the hand of the adversary and no one helped her the adversary saw her They mocked at her ruin. Jerusalem sinned greatly. Therefore, she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. Her uncleanness was in her skirt. She did not consider her future. Therefore, she has fallen astonishingly. She has no comforter. See, O Lord, my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. So Jerusalem here is acknowledging that that she deserves all that has happened to her. It's a result of her sin. This is not some random act of history or or even a harsh act uh, of a merciless God punishing innocent people. He's very clear, for the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. But notice that little line in verse nine. It says she did not consider her future. I think we need to develop the habit of considering the consequences of sin ahead of time. One of the hardest but most helpful exercises I've ever made myself do was to write out the consequences of being unfaithful to my wife. Having to look in her eye and tell her I was not a man of my word. Having to tell my kids that I was unfaithful to their mom. Having to tell you that I'm no longer qualified to be your pastor. Being never able to preach again. It's a sobering list, but it's an attempt to consider the future. We need to learn to think ahead and not let our flesh, right, blind us from 
the pain and the consequences of whatever sin that we're being tempted to commit. Notice verse 10. The adversary has stretched out his hand over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, the ones whom you commanded that they should not enter into your congregation. All her people groan, seeking bread. They have given their precious things for food to restore their lives themselves. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. The precious things there are the vessels of the sanctuary that had been taken by the Babylonians. Uh, The people were suffering famine. They had to spend their gold and silver to buy just the bare essentials. But that line is interesting there. It says, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, talking about the temple, the ones whom you commanded that they should not enter into your congregation. There's a reason why there was a court of the Gentiles in the temple, because the Jews, excuse me, the Gentiles were not allowed into the inner courts. That was for Jews only, but they, it was more of a place to, to, that they could witness to the Gentiles. They could come into the outer outskirts of the temple, and they could be a witness of what does it look like to worship the one true God, but they weren't allowed in the temple. And so it seems that what Jeremiah is saying here is that the the, the Jews had viewed the temple as a good luck charm of sorts, kind of a, a lucky rabbit's foot, if you will. It was a false security. They thought, well, we're safe as long as God's house is here because surely God won't let his enemies, who he commanded not to enter his house, how would he let them not, not just enter the house, but to destroy the house? That'll never happen. Brogop in Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy says this, quote, despite being God's chosen people and the object of his covenantal love, the kingdom of Judah reached a point where the scales of divine justice tipped. God leveled his own temple. He scattered his own people. He ruined his own city. Judah believed that they could do whatever they wanted with God's commandments. They were dismissive of God's rules in their life. It led to this moment. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, God would rather his city and temple be destroyed by pagans than to have his name disgraced by the wicked lies of his own people. And if this is what God did to his people who he views and refers to and treats as the apple of his eye, what will he do with us? One commentator asked the question, shall we play with sin and expect God's blessing? Shall we continue in sin and calmly expect grace to abound? Shall we walk in sin and expect to not have to pay the consequences? So that's the plight of the city. They were in misery. Now let's look at the plea of this city. The plea for mercy. Verse 12. Is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. 
So again, here's Jerusalem, first person now, calling out themselves for everyone to look at the pain and the sorrow that they were suffering, and it was unlike anything anyone had ever experienced. And she admitted that God was the one who had caused the pain and sorrow because of his anger against their sinful rebellion. In other words, the, the horrible state, their horrible, the, the horrible state of that city was the direct result of God's judgment. The Lord brought this. And we're going to see that next time in Lamentations chapter 2, 1 through 8, uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 11. It says, the Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger and he has king- kindled a fire in Zion which has consumed its foundations. So this was God's doing. Verse 13 from on high he sent fire into my bones and it prevailed over them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate, faint all day long. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are knit together. They have come upon my neck. He has made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into the hands of those against whom I am not able to stand. The Lord has rejected all my strong men in the midst He has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a vine press the virgin daughter of Judah. So he uses this series of four metaphors just to describe the the, the situation in Jerusalem. They they, they were burned with fire, like being struck with a lightning bolt of sorts. Uh, They were trapped in in a hunter's net. Uh, they were burdened with this heavy yoke uh, that was on their necks and they were trampled underfoot like grapes in a wine press. Verse 16, for these things I weep, my eyes run down with water because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that the ones round about him should be his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. And that word unclean is a reference to the impurity that's associated with a woman's menstrual cycle. Verse 18, the Lord is righteous For I have rebelled against his command. Hear now all peoples and behold my pain, my virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I call to my lovers, but they deceive me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to restore their strength themselves. Don't miss that first phrase of verse 18. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his command. In other words, Jerusalem was admitting that they were suffering for their unrighteousness, but at the end of the day, God remained righteous. Exodus chapter 9, verse 27, Pharaoh said this to Moses, I have sinned this time, the Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Uh, Ezra Chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9, verse 15, Ezra speaking as the scribe on behalf of the people, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for no one can stand before you because of this. And then Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 33, however, 
You are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. And I think you see where this is going. Psalm 51, David's classic confession of his sin of adultery and murder. In Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified or righteous when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, God, I deserve everything I got coming to me. And you're righteous and you're faithful and I've not been. Walt Kaiser said, every act of God is right for he is altogether righteous and just in all he directs and all he permits. Let's wrap this up. Look at verses 20 to 22. See, O Lord, for I am in distress. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious in the street. The sword slays in the house. It is like death. They have heard that I groan. There is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard my calamity. They are glad that you have done it. Oh, that you would bring the day which you have proclaimed, that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me for all my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. Hopefully you see there that that's a prayer, which each of the first three chapters end with a prayer. Chapter five is, a, is, is an entire prayer. And so here in the, midst of, in the midst of her pain and her sorrow, Judah turns to God in prayer and bears her soul to the Lord. She laments and she pleads with him to notice her plight I assume you saw that that's, I think, the third time that Jeremiah said, see, O Lord. See me, right? Uh, we, we say that, we're, you know, see me. Uh, car's pulling out, hey, see me, right? Um, so we're, he's saying, God, see me. The, the old uh, commentator Matthew Henry said it this way. He says, it is a matter of comfort to us that the troubles which oppress our spirits are open before God's eye, even when we have no one but ourselves to blame for all those troubles. It's still a comfort to know that God sees us and he's not left us to suffer alone. Notice Jerusalem prayed that God would extend judgment to her enemies There was no one else left to turn to but God. Everyone else had gone. The, her, her enemies had ignored her cries for help. They rejoiced to see her suffer. And so they wanted God to send a similar fate on those who, who were jubilant because of their affliction and their difficulty. And so even while Judah prayed that God would repay the wickedness of her gloating enemies, don't miss this. At the same time, she was admitting her own transgressions. And so we see a little ray of light here where the Jews are, are, are turning back to God amid their trouble and their sorrow. They're appealing to God for his grace and mercy, which was a sign that God's discipline had begun to, to take effect. And, and, and they were being led to repentance, which is beautifully and powerfully described in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Verse 6, where 
Paul was saying how he felt bad that he had to cause the people in the church in Corinth sorrow by writing to them a harsh letter confronting their sin. He says, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming but also by the comfort with which he is comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it for I see that the letter caused you sorrow though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong is in everything you demonstrate demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So the Jews had been made sorrowful and they were suffering according to the will of God. And when we repent, God has mercy on us and doesn't give us what we deserve, right? Luke 18, the story of the tax collector there standing some distance away as was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast. He was lamenting, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Another commentator said this, what a mercy it is when the eyes of a sinner are open to see his sins as the cause of his trouble and he cries to God for help. With what gracious speed does the Lord God come to the sinner's aid and when the sinner's and when the sinners are found among his own people, how fully and freely he heals their backslidings. So here we are in the school of lament, sitting in a funeral service, as it were, and it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, it's even painful to hear, but how helpful it is for us. And the lamentations of Jeremiah, again, serve as a sobering warning of the tragic, painful consequences of sin. And we're just seeing here how Judah was reaping what they sowed for mocking the voice of God through the prophet Jeremiah. They they had brought God's discipline down upon themselves. And so we, we learn a valuable lesson from the story about the deceitful nature of sin and its, it, its devastating consequences. We know from James chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 16, that when we're tempted, we're carried away and enticed by our own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brother, my brethren. Satan loves to present the bait but hide the hook. That's Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. 
He tempts us to sin by promising us fun and pleasure, but then conceals the pain and the sorrow that will come as a result. And the initial pleasure we experience is is quickly erased by the final pain. And so we need to remember what Moses, what was said about Moses in Hebrews 11.25, that he passed up the passing pleasures of sin. Someone said this, quote, sin exacts a horrible price from those who enjoy its temporary pleasures. And that's why we need to always remember that while sin is fun, and it is, why would we risk everything to have a taste of it? We need to remember while it's fun, it is fleeting. Sin has a time limit and sin has a price tag. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will what? Find you out. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Listen, this is the harsh reality, the heavy truth this morning. If you are living in sin right now, it's only a matter of time before you experience the consequences of it. You will have to pay the piper sometime. That's just the way it is. You may already be be experiencing the consequences of it. And if that's true, if you are in the consequences right now, I want to encourage you just to humbly accept those consequences that your sin has brought into your life and let those painful consequences of sin do the work that God has ordained them to accomplish because God wisely fashions the consequences of our sin to achieve the maximum effectiveness and it's ultimately he's leading you to repentance. Someone asked this question. He said, Well, sin does not deliver on its promises. Rather, it brings only pain and mercy. Sin's pleasure is only for a moment, but its painful consequences may last a lifetime. So where do we turn when we have fallen for the deceptive power of sin and are reeling in the wake of the havoc it causes? Where do we turn? Or maybe the question is, who do we turn to? We must turn to Christ, who suffered the consequences of our sin. He paid the painful price of sin on the cross. And when we run to Christ rather than run away from Christ, God has mercy on us and forgives us and cleanses us from all our sin. Look back at verse 12. Interesting that some Bible scholars believe that this is a foreshadowing of Christ on the cross, that these words could have easily been quoted by Christ. Is it nothing to all of you who pass this way? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. No one ever endured greater suffering than Christ did. When God... The Father poured out his wrath and his anger against our sin on his beloved Son. And sadly, 
the majority of the world neglects Christ's sacrifice. They walk by and either ignore it or whatever. Let me remind you of the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, where he foretold the Savior's anguish in terms that are very reminiscent of Lamentations chapter 1. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. Another great resource that I would highly recommend is called The Discipline of Mercy, Seeking God in the Wake of Sin's Misery. It's actually a commentary slash counseling manual uh, uh, based on the book of Lamentations. It's actually got homework assignments in it for anyone dealing with the consequences of sin and kind of helping them work their way through Lamentations and apply the principles very practically to their personal lives. But let me just close with this little paragraph that I think summarizes everything we've talked about from Lamentations 1. The authors say this, when we respond properly to the sorrow our sin has caused, it produces a deep repentance that leads to a firm commitment to please God from that day forward. Unfortunately, many people suffer greatly under great sorrow, but never get to this point. Instead, they remain sad and bitter about all they've lost, filled with grief over the destruction in their life, their marriage, or their family, but they fail to reach the point of admitting, this is my doing, this is my fault, God is chastening me, it is I who have brought this misery into my life. As a result, God's mercy seems to elude them. As miserable as the realization of our sin is, it is a necessary step to our being restored to God. Without a full acknowledgement of the depth of our sin against him, any remedy God offers us will seem cheap. True hope is born of deep repentance. This type of confession and repentance is not a recipe to make the temporal consequences of sin go away, but it is the path to recovery, faith, and restored joy and testimony. Immeasurable comfort can be found in the glorious gospel truth that the sinless Messiah suffered the infinite and eternal consequences of sin as our substitute. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what a great entrance into Holy Week as we look forward to contemplating the cross this Friday and your death on our behalf to pay for the consequences of our sin. Lord, I know this is heavy stuff, but Lord, there's a lot of hope in it. And I pray that that hope would come through loud and clear as we go away now and, and, and seek to process what we've heard and what we've learned from Lamentations chapter one, that you would use it in our lives, Lord, to to develop a theology of suffering that would help us, Lord, whenever we are 
feeling the effects of sin uh, in our lives, whether that's the general effects, the indirect effects, or the direct effects. We would know how to think about it, and more importantly, how to think about you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.